I'm going to tell you a story from the book of Esther. It's historical fact. It is powerful. It is life-changing. Um, I'm not going to read you many verses at all, if any, because I'm going to talk you through the entire book of Esther. And just for time, I'm going to tell you the story very quickly so we're all on the same page. Um, the book of Esther is found in the Old Testament and it's based in the Persian Empire and it starts with the king of that empire. He was the most powerful man on the planet at the time and his name was Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus, um, right at the beginning of the book of Esther, we're told that he wanted to throw a party. He basically wanted to show off to everyone on the planet with all of his splendor and all of his glory. So what he did was he threw a six-month party. We're told for six months, all of his officials, all of the governors of that land, they stopped what they were doing and they partied together. They had a feast that lasted for six months. The food was in incredible abundance. The wine was ever flowing. We're told, unsurprisingly, that the end, at the end of that six months, they were quite merry with wine. Go figure, they'd been drinking for quite a long time. I wonder how that empire ran itself. But anyway, for six months, all these guys had been doing was partying. At the end of that six months, he decided that he'd open the doors of his palace to anybody and everybody in the empire so that they could, they could come and join in the feast for a whole week. And at the very end of six months and one week of feasting and drinking and getting merry with wine, he decided that as the pinnacle of his glory, he would invite his queen, Vashti, to come and parade before everybody. Um, we're told in her crown in the story, most commentators think that that is an indicator that that was the only thing she was to wear to, as she paraded before the king and his officials. Unsurprisingly, Vashti didn't really fancy coming and parading herself in front of the king and all of his officials, so she declined. She said no. Now, that was unthinkable in those times. A woman had no power and no status in life. The only thing women were good for was to follow the orders of the men around them. And so for a queen to say no to a king was unthinkable and she humiliated him in public. And so the king gathered his officials and they started to talk about what to do with the problem of Vashti. And his officials said to him, not only is Vashti a problem because she humiliated you in public, but Vashti is a problem because she will now be a model to all women everywhere that they can say no to their husbands and clearly no one can live in a society like that. And so what they did was they decided that they would throw Vashti out. She would no longer be queen and they would look for a new queen, a queen who would listen, a queen who would be submissive as women were to be. And so they threw an empire-wide search for a new queen by basically bringing all of the beautiful virgins into the palace, forcibly removing them from their families and their homes, bringing them to the palace, training them for a period of months, giving them one night with the king, which is exactly as it sounds. It wasn't pretty. This isn't a sweet story. It was pretty horrific. These women were brought to one night with the king, and after he'd had his moment with each of these women, and he then decided which queen, which one he wanted to crown as queen. Well, this is where Esther comes into the story. She was a Jew, she was an orphan, she was a beautiful virgin. And so she, having been raised by her cousin Mordecai um, in the Persian Empire, he says to her just before she's forcibly removed to go into this beauty pageant training thing, 
um, he says to her, don't tell anyone you're a Jew, don't tell anyone who you are, because not only were women the lowest of the low, but Jews were even lower than that. And so for her to admit that she was a Jew and an orphan would really make her a nothing and a nobody. So she doesn't tell anybody who she is. And she goes through this whole training process. She has her night with the king. And eventually she miraculously wins favor with everybody and becomes the new queen of the Persian empire. This is where the story gets interesting. There's an official whose name is Haman. He hated the Jews. And at this point in the story, he gets the king to sign off on an order that basically is designed to annihilate the Jewish people. Esther's cousin Mordecai hears about this plan. And he comes to Esther outside the gates of the palace. And he says to Esther, you're gonna have to do something about this. You, Esther, go to the king, sort this problem out. And she says, are you kidding me? Don't you know that I'm a nothing and I'm a nobody? You know what happens when queens start thinking for themselves, they get into trouble. You know very well that even though I have a title of a queen, that means absolutely nothing because I'm a woman, I'm a nobody, I can do nothing. And Mordecai starts speaking words to her, words of courage. He starts saying to her, Esther, what if you were made for more than you've believed? And as he speaks to her, something changes in her thinking. And he, she says, okay, let's all pray about it. Fast for three days. I will go to the king. Even though she's aware that the penalty of going to the king if he doesn't want to see you is death even for queens. Three days later, she walks down the long hallway to the throne room to speak to the king. And as she goes to him, trembling, thinking this might be my last day of life on the planet, Esther, what can I do for you? And as the story progresses, Esther basically invites the king and Haman to two consecutive banquets. See, she understood the king's love language. She invites them to a party. And two parties later, the king says, come on, Esther, what is it that you want me to do for you? And she, at that moment, exposes Haman's plot for what it is. She pleads for the lives of her people. And the king orders Haman to be put to death and the Jewish people are saved. It sounds like a ridiculous fairy tale. It doesn't sound like it could possibly be true that a nobody saved the course of millions of people. But that's exactly what happened. This is historical fact. It's a remarkable story. And I love this story because I believe it's something that God wants to use to bring much courage into our lives as we approach living our lives in all the places of influence that we're in because this story is to be used as a springboard to understand who we are and what we've been made for. And so the title of this talk is something I like to call uh, What the Enemy Wishes You Didn't Know. And these are four things that I believe the enemy understands are pivotal under uh, un, pivotal truths for us to understand if we're to go and do all that we were made to do, all that we were put on the planet for. So get ready, here we go. The first is, you are better than you've ever believed. You are more than the world's estimations. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 5 tells us you're a brand new creation. If you are in Christ, you have been made brand new. Sometimes we approach Christianity like it's an issue of morality. We approach the cross and resurrection like they're a ginormous washing machine. Like all that Jesus came to die for was to make bad people good. When we reduce Christianity to an issue of morality, we totally misunderstand 
what Christianity is about. Because God is not primarily a holy God making bad people good. God is primarily a father God bringing, uh, bringing orphans into sonship. God is primarily a God who brings people who are dead into life. This isn't, if you've become a Christian, what you've entered into isn't an issue of behavior modification, is about transforming you entirely. And the moment that you meet with Jesus, the moment that you say to Jesus, I wanna lean my life completely on yours and have you come and transform everything in me, the moment you do that, the Bible tells us everything in you gets transformed because 2 Corinthians 5 says, the old goes and the new comes. You have become a brand new creation. That means you are no longer the old person. That means you are not just a cleaner version of yourself because if we understand that to be true of Christianity, that means we can get grubby again. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't describe Christianity as going through a washing machine. The Bible describes Christianity as being transformed. Every cell of your being, if you are in Christ, has been transformed into something completely different. You now have the substance of the righteousness of Christ coursing through your veins. That's what the Bible says. And the enemy hates this. He hates this truth because he knows that if we understand who we really now are, then we will start acting like who we really now are. And that's seriously dangerous for him. The enemy knows that you become like that which you focus on. So he knows that if he can get you to focus on who you once were, he knows that if he can get you to focus on the sin issues that you struggle with, because we're all still in process of learning how to be the people God has made us to be. But he knows if he can get you to focus on that which is dead, you'll still live in the reality of that which is dead. He hates this truth. But I wanna tell you, you're better than you've ever believed. You're more than the world's estimations. You are a brand new creation and you are full of the righteousness of Christ. This is really important for us to get. It's not theory, it's very practical. It means in our churches, and I don't know how you guys do home groups or cell groups or whatever you call them or community life together, but I've been in church for a very long time and I have led groups, I'm gonna be seriously honest about this, I have led groups that call themselves accountability groups where we all get together and we talk about the sins that we're struggling with and then we all feel really, really bad and if you've been in church for about five minutes, you've probably experienced something of this where you kind of talk about the sins that you really struggle with, you wanna overcome, then you keep talking about it, then you all pray about it and the aim of that accountability group is to inject enough fear and shame into you so that the following week you'll be too afraid to do that sin again and then you come together again and the people who've managed to be fearful enough not to do that sin feel just that little bit smug because I was really good that week and then you look down on the people who didn't feel fear enough to be ashamed not to do you know what I'm talking about. And then we go round and round and round in circles and wonder why we never get free of sin. It's because we're focusing on the wrong thing. That which you focus on, you become like. And the enemy loves that kind of accountability because it makes you feel discouraged and it saps your strength. Because psychologists tell us that our behavior is not primarily motivated by our desires, but is primarily motivated by our understanding of who we are. 
So if you know that you are now the righteousness of Christ, if you know that you are now a son or a daughter of the King of Kings, if you know that everything about you has been changed so that sin is actually the most unnatural thing for you to do rather than the most natural. Everything about you changes so that what you do reflects who you now are rather than who you once were. I wanna tell you, you're better than you've ever believed. This means that our accountability groups get to be groups where we start speaking life into one another, where we say, hey, wasn't there that weird girl from South Africa the other day who prophesied this over you? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that prophetic word. Let me keep reminding you about that prophetic word. Let me keep speaking courage into you. That's what our accountability groups should look like because the more we speak gold and recognize gold in one another, the more we will live in the light of who God has made us to be. You know, in Ephesians 4, where it talks about speak the truth in love to one another, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you probably will have heard someone say to you one day, hi, I I just really need to speak the truth in love to you. And as soon as someone says that, you know that you're gonna get a smack around the head, but the person is gonna have a smile on their face and you're to thank them for it afterwards. Because we use that verse as an excuse to criticize and then feel really spiritual about it. That's not what that verse is about at all. Listen, truth is not an idea, he's a person and he lives inside of you and me. When we speak the truth in love to one another, that verse is in the context of maturity in Christ, becoming everything that Christ is, fully growing into our head who is Christ, which means that verse is telling us when you speak the truth in love to one another, what you're doing is speaking Christ-likeness to one another. You're saying, Ben, I see Jesus in you. I see how his kingdom is flowing from you and reverberating from you to change this entire area and actually to become a national voice that will shape what happens in this nation. That's what it means to speak the truth in love to one another. That's what it means. It means recognizing Jesus in one another and speaking who you now are, which is a brand new creation in Christ. You're better than you believed. You're more than the world's estimations. Everything about Esther, she believed who the world had told her she was. She believed that she was small and a nobody. She believed she was insignificant. She believed that she couldn't do anything to change anything. And then Mordecai comes to her and he starts saying, what if you were made for such a time as this? And as he speaks words of courage, everything changes because she starts to believe maybe, just maybe I'm more than I once thought. And so she behaves differently than what she once would have. Beautiful thing about Mordecai in this story is that he's a picture of who Holy Spirit is to each of us. See, I think Holy Spirit gets a bad rep in the church and lots of Christians struggle with Holy Spirit because what we've made him to be is the quality control monitor of heaven as if all he does every day is run after Christians telling us of our sins and making us feel suitably bad so that we'll start behaving differently. And we talk about it, you know, I was at work the other day and then I was gossiping with my friends and then Holy Spirit came and convicted me and I felt really bad and now I know that I need to stop gossiping. And when we do that, what we do is give him a bad rep because Holy Spirit is not running after Christians telling us of our sins. The Bible never tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts believers of their sins. Not once. We're not reading our Bibles accurately if that's what we believe Holy Spirit's role is. The Bible in John 16 tells us the Holy Spirit comes to convict the 
unbeliever of their sin. Why, to make them feel terrible? No, to lead them to repentance so that they'll come into relationship with God. But if you read Galatians 4, if you read Romans 8, you'll know Holy Spirit doesn't convict the believer of their sin. No, Holy Spirit convicts the believer of their right standing with Jesus. Holy Spirit convicts the believer of their sonship in Christ. Holy Spirit comes to tell you who you are and whose you are and what you were made to do. Mordecai here as he speaks courage to Esther is a picture of Holy Spirit speaking to each and every one of us, giving us courage to do all that we were put on the planet to do and be all that he has made us to be. Don't believe that Holy Spirit is trying to make you feel bad. That is nonsense. Holy Spirit is speaking words of courage to you even now. Are you tuning in to hear him? Because the enemy wants us to believe a lie about Holy Spirit, so we hold him at arm's length. Don't believe the enemy, he's a liar. Holy Spirit is good and kind, and his thoughts towards you are full of affirmation and destiny, if we'll only have the courage to hear him. And you know the beautiful thing about the words of God and the thoughts of God towards us is that they're not just wishful thinking. It's not like Jesus and Holy Spirit are like, oh, I really hope this person will be great one day. No, when Holy Spirit speaks greatness to you, his words in, him, in themselves have the power to empower you to be all that he says. Listen, we see this in Jesus' life. If you read the gospels, I'm sorry I'm speaking so fast, but there's so much to get through. When you see Jesus in the gospels, you see that he never prays for the sick. He simply commands them to be healed because Jesus, every single word that he spoke had the power to do that which he commanded. So he says to the lame man, walk. And as he says, walk, power is released for the lame man to walk. He says to the dead, rise, and they rise. He says to the blind, see, and they see. He's not pleading with the Father. What he's saying is, I have the power in my words to release everything needed to accomplish that which I've said. It's why when Peter's stuck in the boat and Jesus is walking on waves, Peter saw Jesus. He knew what Jesus could do. And so he says to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come and I'll come. Peter knew if Jesus says come, power will be released for me to get up and come to him. He knew that. It's why when Jesus speaks to the woman caught in adultery, where was the man by the way? That's a secondary issue. When Jesus speaks to the woman caught in adultery, he says to her, go and sin no more. And we think that's Jesus just like, I let you go, but don't think you're getting off scot-free. No, he's not insulting her. He's empowering her. He's re releasing the power in his very words for her to go and sin no more. It's a word of empowerment, not an insult. And so when Holy Spirit, like Mordecai here, speaks words of destiny and greatness and affirmation over you, it's not wishful thinking. As he speaks over you, power is released to accomplish every single thing his words say. Tune in to hear him. I wanna tell you, you are better than you've ever believed and you are more than the world's estimations. I don't know if you've been told great things or terrible things about who you are. I don't know if you had parents who loved you or who, who were abusive. I don't know if teachers at school told you you were great 
or told you that you never amount to anything. You are more than the world's estimations. Even in the best things that people have said, they're not as awesome as what God is saying over you. And even in the worst, most horrific things that people have said, I wanna tell you those words are a lie because you have been created by God himself and he is good and he is kind and he never makes mistakes and he put you on this planet for influence. He put you on this planet to change the world, whether that looks like your family, your school, your workplace or the nations, you were put here for influence. You are more than the world's estimations. And I wanna say over this church, you are more than the world's estimations. However many people you are right now, I wanna tell you, you were put here to change everything in this area. You were put here to change everything in this area, in this city, and I believe in this nation. I really do believe there is anointing on you guys for a national impact, that there is something about what God is gonna do in this place that is gonna shake things up and it's gonna reshape some of people's experience of who God is and how they believe Christianity should work. This is a phenomenal place of significance. Point number two. You guys doing okay? You're not outnumbered. The enemy loves to tell you that you're outnumbered, but the enemy is a liar. You better believe when Esther was walking down towards that throne room, Every demon was telling her, turn around, turn around. You are one woman. You're walking into a room full of guys, which by the way is really intimidating. Don't do it, turn around. You are outnumbered. The enemy loves to tell you and me, turn around. He loves to make you feel like you're backed into a corner. He loves to make you feel like it's just you against every demon of hell. I wanna tell you, the enemy is a liar. Don't believe him. Can we just do some simple maths together for a second? The Bible tells us that when the devil fell from heaven, he took one third of the angels of heaven with him. That means if you discount God the Father, Son, and Spirit, who are pretty much in majority all on their own, I think we'll all agree. But even if we discount God entirely, if we're left with only the angels, the enemy is the one outnumbered because for every demon on the planet, there are two angels. That means that when the enemy tells you it's not a fair fight, He's 50% correct. It's not a fair fight, but not against you, against him. He's the one who is outnumbered. He is the one who is consistently in a position of weakness because wherever you go, there are more angels with you than there are possible demons against you. That means whatever you're facing, and I don't wanna belittle whatever you're facing. Some of you are walking through the most horrific circumstances, but I wanna tell you this. I wanna speak courage into you today. You are are not outnumbered. You are not backed into a corner. Do not give ground. Do not turn around. When you've heard God speak, when you know who you are and what he said about himself and what he said about your circumstance, don't budge. An amazing preacher called Graham Cook says, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and the Bible tells us one part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. But the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside of the devil. That means wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can outpatience the enemy. Because you have the fruit of patience and he does not. That means stand your ground. I am convinced because I've lived it, I've been a Christian for the last 35 years, 
I know this to be true, that the enemy is playing a game of spiritual chicken with you and I consistently. He's coming at us head on, betting that we will move first. Don't budge. You know what spiritual warfare looks like? Ephesians 6 tells us what it looks like, and it's not us running up to every high place or doing something strange or weird. It simply looks like one word, stand. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Why? Because the cross and resurrection is already the place of victory. You don't need to run around to get victory. Victory is God. You are standing on victorious ground. The only way the enemy gains ground is when we budge. Don't budge. Don't move. Don't do it. There's so much more I wanna say, but I wanna tell you, you are not outnumbered. Be a people of great courage. Whatever storm you're facing, you are not backed into a corner. You know, one of my absolute favorite verses in the Bible is found in Genesis 32, where there's this incredible story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother, Jacob was the younger, and he was a piece of work. But God really loved Jacob and he chose him to do amazing things. And Jacob stole from Esau, who was the big hairy brother who could have beaten him. And so Jacob had to run away. But eventually after many years, God speaks to Jacob and he says, I want you to go back to the land of your forefathers because I wanna do you good. And so Jacob starts journeying with his wife, with his wives, with his children, with all that he has towards his homeland. And he's told at one point, your brother Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men bad moment. And so what he does is he splits up the camp and he prays all night and eventually he comes to this moment with God and he says to him, God, I'm afraid because my brother Esau is coming and I fear him. But you said, I will surely do you good. And so they keep walking towards his homeland. And it's an amazing story of relational restoration. And a while ago, I was moaning about different things to Jesus and saying to him, no, you said this and it didn't happen and blah, 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 and throwing myself an absolute pity party. And he said to me, your sentence is the wrong way round. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he showed me how I was saying to him, promise, but problem. Constantly, that was my prayer. You said this, but this. You said we should do this, but we have no finance for this. You said this, you said go for healing, but our friend has just died. You said this, right? He said, your sentence is the wrong way around. You should be saying problem, but promise. Problem, but promise. Problem, but promise. Because what has the final word in how you see life? What has the final word in how you're moving forward? I wanna tell you, stick to your guns. Stand your ground. Do not move aside to the left or to the right. Because when he said to you, he is faithful to fulfill all that he has said. You are now not outnumbered. You are not backed into a corner. Number four, let's move on. We're almost there. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. You know what the difference between Vashti and Esther were? Vashti didn't know the king's love language. <laughs> Esther and Vashti did very similar things because they defied the custom of the day. But what Esther did was she understood feasting for the king. 
And so she kept inviting him to the context of feasting in order to bring breakthrough. And there's something for us to understand in the spiritual life about feasting and joy for breakthrough. Because, and forgive me right now, if you are an intercessor in this church, I love you, I believe in the power of prayer, I love intercessors, but, okay, I'm just gonna say but, there has come a culture of intercession in many churches where intercessors use that as a badge of intensity. And I think we've all met people like this. I, well, I'll just tell you and you can tell me if you've met people like this, where you meet someone and, oh, what do you do? I'm an intercessor. Intensity volume has just jumped. <laughs> like, I just don't know what just happened. And they tell you, how much time they pray with weeping and travail before the Lord. And they tell you, oh, do you know how dark the days are? Yeah. Again, the enemy loves to distract us with doing spiritual things that won't have power to bring transformation. And I believe this is happening in the culture around intercession because seriousness does not equal breakthrough. Intensity does not equal breakthrough. Depression does not equal breakthrough. If you spend hours and hours on your face before God, weeping under the burden of the problem that you're praying about, please stop. I mean it, stop. Because breakthrough comes where people are in faith and full of joy to see the breakthrough of God in those moments. It's not depression and intensity that leads to breakthrough. Do you know how I know this? It's because in the book of Nehemiah, it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength and God knows in a battle you need strength. And there's this lie that's crept into the church where joy is frivolous, where you're allowed to cry in a meeting, but laughing, well, that's just rude. It's a lie of the enemy because he knows joy equals strength. And I wanna tell you, some of you have been in a battle and you've not known what to do. You feel like you're being hammered on all sides and you feel like your Christianity is anemic. And I wanna ask you this, where is your joy? Because joy equals strength. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. Psalm 23 says, in the presence of my enemies, he prepares a table for me. Not after he's defeated the enemy, no, in the presence of the enemy, in the midst of the battle at its blackest moment, he says, come and sit down and eat. Because in the presence of your enemies, he prepares a table. And a friend of mine says, you get to invite the guests. Fear, you're uninvited, off you go. Shame, you're uninvited, off you go. It's your table with Jesus, you get to invite the guests. But he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemy. Feasting and joy is the best context for breakthrough. I wanna tell you a story, because I think it's important in this moment. And then we'll, we'll try to wrap up. Um, okay, before I say the story, let me just say, I'm not a crazy person. I am, I'm actually a qualified doctor, would you believe? I don't practice medicine anymore. I did emergency medicine for about four years. Um, okay, so that's the background, okay. Um, a number of years ago, just, when, just before Julian and I were going to get married, um, Julian's mom got really, really sick um, to the point that she was... Um, 
put into intensive care. She went into an induced coma. Her body completely shut down. The night before our wedding, the doctors phoned Julian to say, um, she's gonna die tonight. Please come and say goodbye to her. All the way through our wedding day, we were anticipating a call to say that she'd died in the hospital. Throughout our honeymoon, we kept phoning back to see if she was still alive or if she died. It was a crazy time. Jesus was incredibly kind. She didn't die. She's still alive today. But it was a real robbing moment for us where we would believed that we were both in our 30s when we got married and we'd really believed like this was the moment that God was so blessing and then it all went completely wrong. And our wedding day was just, it was a blur. We were both so emotionally numb throughout the whole thing. And afterwards, we were really processing what happened. God, what did you do? What on earth was going on? It was such a disappointment. And um, a few months after our wedding day, we were at a conference in a church called Bethel in California. Um, And as part of that conference, all the delegates were sitting down in a hotel, kind of like this one, having dinner together. It was a nice meal. Everyone was behaving themselves. Someone walked past, past me, put their hand on my shoulder. As they did that, the Spirit of God, um, pounced on me, there's no other word, pounced on me and I burst out laughing. Now I'm saying not like sweet hee 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 hee, more like ha like that, okay? I laughed so hard that I was crying while I'm shrieking hysterically with laughter. Everyone else is having their dinner. I'm starting to say to Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? Please make it stop. Please make it stop. Like, this is mortifying. I laughed so hard that I couldn't walk out of there. Julian had to carry me to the car. I laughed so hard that we were driving to the evening meeting. I couldn't stop crying. Uh, When we got to the church for the evening meeting, Julian had to carry me out of the car. If you've ever been to a conference at Bethel, they've got like a prayer line as you go through the front door that are like just praying for delicacies as they come into the conference. It's really lovely, except it wasn't lovely for me because I was a magnet to them and they started saying, more Lord, which is a really, really mean thing to say to someone like that. I fell on the ground because I was laughing so uncontrollably. I had lost all ability to walk. Julian abandoned me, sitting nice. This guy right here abandoned me, found his seat somewhere, (laughs) pretending he didn't know me. I crawled towards him. I can't tell you what happened in that meeting because I howled with laughter for an hour and a half. And the first half hour, I was like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. That was pretty much it. And then after that, I realized he wasn't gonna pay attention to my stop it. So I said, what on earth are you doing, Jesus? He said to me, you've been in a battle and you didn't know how to fight. I'm teaching you warfare. Next time you are in a battle, this is what you are to do. You're going to get so happy in God that you start laughing at the lies of the enemy and everything will be transformed for you. And about a year after that, Julian and I were in a battle much, much worse than the first one that we'd faced. And everything was hopeless and everything was black and we didn't know what to do. And just at the point where I'd lost all sense of belief in Jesus for our situation, I remembered what he taught me. And I wrote how black the situation was on a piece of paper. And I stood on that piece of paper and I put worship music on. And I worshiped and worshiped until I was able to be happy, which took a couple of hours. But I wanna tell you in that moment, the verse that he turns our ashes into beauty became real for me. And everything changed in my heart. Nothing changed in my circumstance, but everything changed from that point onwards in my heart. I wanna tell you, if you are in a battle, this is what you are to do. You are to get so happy in God that you're able to laugh at the lies of the enemy because that's what Psalms tells us that God does. He laughs at the lies of the enemy. 
You are to laugh at him and you're to find joy because joy is strength and God knows you need strength in the battle. Last one. Last thing the enemy doesn't want you to know, the father is kinder than you dare believe. See, even this evil king shows us in this moment the kindness of the father when he extends mercy when death was the anticipated response. In Luke 4, there's this amazing moment where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he starts speaking from the words of the prophet in Isaiah. And he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing and I'm just gonna read the words to you. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we're told he rolled up the scroll and he sat down. See, the astonishing thing about what Jesus did that day is not the words that he read, but the words that he didn't read. Because if you know the prophecy from Isaiah, you'll know that the end of that prophecy is not favor, it's the day of the vengeance of our God. And so in that moment, as Jesus was reading the words of the prophecy, and when he said, I have fulfilled this, in your hearing, what he did on purpose was leave out vengeance. Why did he do that? Well, because he in himself absorbed all the vengeance of God, any ounce of punishment towards sin and death and disobedience so that there is no vengeance of God left for humanity. Jesus is the favor filled full stop of heaven. I wanna tell you the Father is kinder than you dare believe. There is no moment in your life where, the, where God is watching to see you stumble so that he can strike you for it. That's not how he operates. So often as Christians, we treat punishment and discipline in the same way where we say God is disciplining me, but what we actually mean, the correct word in that moment is punishing me because what we mean is I did something wrong and he is reacting to thing, the thing that I did wrong. I wanna tell you that's not discipline, that's punishment. Discipline is about empowering you for your future. Punishment is about paying you back for your, for your past. There is never a moment that you can do something wrong where God punishes you for that thing because the cross has taken all the punishment. There is never a moment. God empowers us for our future. He never deals with us according to our sin. Last verse. Psalm 23, six says, his goodness, surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. The father is so kind, his goodness and mercy is following you all of the days of your life. Surely, not maybe, not just on the good days, not on just on the obedient days, but surely his goodness and mercy is following you all of the days of your life. You know, I have two toddlers. I know what it's like to not be able to escape in any given moment. I'm an introvert at heart. There are moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I definitely just need one second alone, so I'll run and hide in the bathroom because the door locks. And as soon as I do that, there's two pairs of hands. Mommy, let us in. My children are inescapable and I love them. <laughs> Surely his goodness and mercy follow me all of the days of my life. You cannot escape his goodness or mercy. No matter where you go, no matter how far you go, no matter how deep you get into trouble, his goodness and mercy are following you inescapably all of the days of your life. Would you stand with me for a minute?
We're just gonna do a couple of moments of ministry. I have no idea what time it is, sorry. We're gonna do a couple of minutes of ministry. I just felt like God wanted to deal with some hearts that are hammered and bruised from the battle. And he wanted to bring his kindness, his goodness, his salve to weary hearts. Felt like he wanted to just rush in with his affection for you. I felt like God wanted to bring healing to hearts that are bruised and healing to hearts that have been scared to trust Holy Spirit. And even in this moment, God is recalibrating some minds about who Holy Spirit is and what he wants to do in our lives. And I felt like finally that God wanted to do something in some hearts where you know that you've been listening to the enemy's assessment of who you are and what you bring to the table. And you've kind of bought in to that I'm a nothing and a nobody, what can I possibly do? And it may be that people have spoken those words over you or it may be that that's something that the enemy has and slowly but surely you've started to agree with that assessment. And even in this moment, God wants you in this moment to reach out in faith to what he's spoken over you and to start breaking agreement with what the enemy has said. And very simply to start saying, that's not what God says. I'm not gonna say yes to that anymore. I'm not gonna say yes, I'm a loser. I'm not gonna say yes yes, I'm so small and insignificant. I'm not gonna say, yes, what God has called me to is too big and I won't be able to do it. But rather in this moment, we get to powerfully because we are all powerful people in Christ. So we get to come into agreement with the words of God. And so if any of this makes sense to you, won't you just lift up your hands just as a sign of Jesus, I'm willing, I'm ready. If you're hurting, just allow Holy Spirit to come and breathe life and healing over you. In the name of Jesus, I just come against disappointment. I come against offense against Holy Spirit. And I just speak healing salve of the Spirit's kindness over men and women in this room. For those of you who've been in a battle, I speak joy in place of weariness right now. In the name of Jesus, I just speak such an injection of the joy of God that it would overwhelm you even like it did to me that day, that you wouldn't even know what to do with the injection of joy that comes into your body, but that it would transform everything about how you see your situation and how you see God working all things for good. And so in the name of Jesus, we just speak the goodness and the kindness of God over every man, every woman in this place. In the name of Jesus.